Today's episode is brought to you by Third Love. Third Love is a new lingerie brand that uses more specific measurements to create better fitting bras. Test out a bra for free for 30 days before deciding if it's right for you. Join the Try Before You Buy program now at thirdlove.com vulture. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we'll be talking in-depth about ESPN's new documentary series, OJ Made in America. But first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. So we're here with TV critic Matt Zoller-Seitz, as always. Hey, Gazelle. Hey, Matt. We also have a New York Magazine writer-at-large, Rembert Brown, with us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being great, here. Great to be back. I only <laughs> great come to, you only come for OJ. OJ. <laughs> yeah, we're, we got to change the, uh, that. OJ correspondent. <laughs> OJ correspondent. <laughs> and we're very excited to be joined by the director of OJ Made in America, Ezra Edelman. Ezra, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for yeah. having me. Um, Wait, when was Rembert on talking about OJ? For the FX series. Uh, I, don't, I don't acknowledge that. Which <laughs> that which we don't speak of. <laughs> that which will not be named. It's like Voldemort. <laughs> <laughs> At what point did you did you learn of the existence of that miniseries? Uh, and what was your reaction? Uh, well, I could certainly tell you my reaction. Uh, when probably was, I don't know, maybe last summer. Yeah. And then you hear that there's a you know 10-hour dramatization happening and you – not that I am that familiar with Ryan Murphy's work, but I kind of was like, okay, both that is terrible from the standpoint of really we're doing something this long and someone at the same exact time is doing this. But for a while, I actually thought that we were going to be done in October that or by October. That's when it's supposed to be on. So for a while, I operated on the illusion that we would actually be finished and the thing would be on television before that ever aired right. because I did hear that it was airing in February. And then when we sort of just decided to run through that stop sign, yeah. uh, it became more of an issue. But like, you know, a lot of the sort of feelings of, oh, no one's going to want to watch t- another 10 hours of something. Yeah. You know, when I, especially when it was released and it got, it was clear that it was good, you know, critically and very popular, that was the fear, which is, you know, it will sort of swallow up the entire conversation. Everyone will be OJ'd out. Right. What is going to happen to our film? And then you just sort of go, look, you know, the work is what the work is. We tried our best and we feel like it's a worthwhile piece of material and hopefully it'll find an audience. And, right. And it also it's con- it's something that you would hope will endure over the years mm-hmm. and it won't always be pigeon like place next to this other OJ thing, you know? Well, here's the thing. I mean, in the end, regardless of my own paranoia and fear about, like, you know, something that is both coincidental and, you know, maybe unfortunate, I certainly underestimated, you know, the culture's fascination with the story. And there's no doubt sitting here now that the existence of that show and its popularity has only helped drive interest in our doc. So I don't – so I sit here now going – Okay, I'm glad to affect show. <laughs> well, that well, that brings me to my next question, which is while watching the the premiere of of uh, the first episode, like on its regular broadcast, mm-hmm. with 
my uh, two kids, my daughter, who's 19, said she was riveted by it. My son, who is uh, uh, not quite 12, also was. Hmm. This is all news to them. Right. Most of this stuff, like they knew maybe the vaguest outline of what happened, but the particulars were fascinating to them. And my daughter said to me at one point, why is there so much interest in OJ now? And I didn't know what to tell her. And I wondered if you had any theories about that. Uh, well, the now part specifically, um, I don't think is the necessarily the correct sort of way of framing it. I think it is a coincidence that these two things have been done sort of simultaneously and whatever the 20 years of like, there are people that decided that there's been enough distance. So we're really going to dive into this two decades later. I mean, I say that from the standpoint of these just happen to be two extremely long, high-profile projects. There have been a lot of things that have been done about OJ over the years and every anniversary. I mean, this is literally like the 22nd anniversary, like to the day of, you know, the the murder was yesterday to like how it all played out on this June 13th. And there's all this stuff that happens all the time. I think the combination of the lack of resolution that you have a majority of Americans, now black and white, who believe he was guilty of murder, and yet, you know, He's never obviously done anything except said steadfastly offer denials and and of and you know his involvement of the whole thing. And then further, when you get into the story as it's being laid out, I think in both the show and this film, it just touches on so much stuff that's still so relevant today. That in terms of whether you're you're not whether you care about OJ or not, as soon as you enter a story and it is about race and policing, you know, profiling and brutality, it's about domestic violence. It's about media and celebrity. It's all these things that are so translatable to today and everything that goes on from the presidential election on down to everything that's happening every day on the streets that I think that as much as we, you know, sort of attached ourselves and our worldviews to this thing 20 years ago, it's easy to do that now to attach that story, to attach that story to everything that's happening now. And you can sort of say, oh, look, this is an example of how little we've progressed. Right. Or this is an example of, like, I, I don't know, but I think the, the combination of the two. Mm. Did S- you- sorry for the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> Did you expect to be telling such a relevant story when you started out? Well, certainly when I started out, you know, I would, could not have known that this sort of spate of violence, police violence, that has been so public would take place. But having said that, you know, that's what this film's about, like, because it does take place. It just, yes, it, it's galvanized into a movement and there's been stuff that's happening that be, that is big, you know, that is more high profile, which is terrible. But part of them, for me, the message of the film is, yeah, it didn't start last year. It didn't start in 1992. Yeah. You know, this stuff goes, this has been sort of pervasive and how we absorb it culturally in the media or whatever, it depends on a videotape that may have, you know, sort of, you know, may exist or what have you. And so there are topics, as I said, that I knew were, you know, sort of meaningful and would, you know, translate to today. The specifics of the things that have happened in the last two years from where I began this, I couldn't have known. And, but, you know, once you start getting into it, it's like, and there's nothing that needs to be said or specifically alluded to. It just is. Right. That's what makes this such an American story. You know, everything that happened in 1965 in a lot of ways and you're seeing the evolution, even through O.J. as a character, as a media character and sort of, again, the superficial way to me that he decided to go through the world 
very much in contrast to the substantial times that he came up in. I, I think you can trace his existence as like a as a media celebrity arc as far as where we've devolved culturally. Right. And so like that's for me it's like everything was always very apparent to me that what c- sort of connects back to 50 years ago. I mean it, it is the sa- it's relevant today. Mm-hmm. One thing watching the film I was, you know, like we were saying right before we turned this on like we there aren't really spoilers in terms of like the chronological arc of what happens in the story we we know about the real life story of OJ, but there were Part of the the beauty of making this film is that you kind of get to decide how you tell it. You get to decide what to include um, and also like, how to portray OJ in some ways, like based off, I guess, the questions you ask or who you ask. Were there, um, were there moments when you felt yourself um, kind of struggling to uh, f- figure out how to – how to portray OJ at a certain moment. Like I remember there was a point in the middle where I just found myself being very sympathetic to OJ. I was like, God, like it is just hard being like a, a black man in America. It's like I, I wanna there are certain moments like I wanted to just like hate on him for, you know, some of the quotes he says. Like, right. like the I'm not black, I'm OJ. Like that is like a very big takeaway line and it infuriates me. But in that moment there are points where I'm like, I just, I understand how hard it must have been. Like, was that like just an internal struggle where there's like points where you identified with him and that felt weird, felt awkward? Well, the first thing I think is, you know, I think I was reading a piece today about sort of how, you know, he's been erased from certain institutions, USC, Buffalo mm-hmm. Bills don't really want to sort of include him in their in their very basic history and the outcry <laughs> right. that's come when you're like, he's still that person. He is still the best running back in franchise history. He is still, but it's like this very uncomfortable way of dealing with it, especially, by the way, um, because he's not a convicted murderer. So you're like, are you allowed to do th- I mean, you can do whatever you want, but right. like, are you allowed to do this? Um, and so the first thing, take drafting off of that sentiment is the idea of there's, you know when you're setting out to do this, there are going to be, insofar as you believe millions of people will watch this, there are going to be millions of people who were just like, I don't, I, I don't want to watch a story about him being a good guy. Yeah. Like there's no, I don't want to be sympathetic to him. I don't see him in any sympathetic light. He is a monster. And so for me, starting off with this, I am like, no, I'm just looking at the human being who is a lot more complicated and complex than what he has been reduced to in the last 21, 22 years. And as far as the idea of the racial, you know, his identity and sort of the choices he made, yeah, I, I have empathy and sympathy. And then, like, and then it goes away. Yeah. Right. And so, like, I am sympathetic towards, you know, him and, and a dynamic that he's thrust in when he is 20 years old and he's sort of, absorbing fame for the first time and like again all he ever wanted all he ever wanted from the time he was a young kid was to be famous so that you know where first of all that dream and where it comes from and growing up where he grew up you know in the projects to sort of you know sort of be able to transcend in your brain you know where you are to say this is what I want yeah I see this in the movies or on TV I want to be that guy and I'm not going to be sort of held down by my sort of class 
my co- the color of my skin. Like so, it's like yeah, man, great. Then you get to a place, and oh yeah, and you also have the you have a talent, so that allows you to get to a place. But then you get to the place in 1967, 68. All of a sudden, you start becoming a star. You're in this place. They all love you. They stick a camera in front of your face. They're telling you how great you are. And then some cats come over here and say, "All right, well, and you're black, so <laughs> yeah, you got to do this." And I sympathize with that because. You know, I mean, that didn't happen to me, but I'm just like when, you know, when I was 20 years old in college, I, I mean, I, I had an understanding of the world. I had a, I had a code and my belief and my politics and what they were. But was I active in sort of in, in, in being determined of actual doing something? If someone forced my hand to do, I would probably say I just want to stay on my couch <laughs> and do what a college student wants to do. And so there is a level at which I have sympathy for him in that position, the sort of the pressure, the burden that's all of a sudden placed on you when you didn't ask for that. Then to your point, when your response is, I'm not black, I'm OJ, which is not that defensible or not even at all defensible. But what's less defensible is then again where it keeps going Mm -hmm. to me. And even the story that comes after it, because you could be like, look, Harry Edwards says this, it was a conversation, it's verbatim, okay. But you could still see how that's framed in a way, being like how he's talking about himself. Like, I'm, you know, for these purposes, I'm not black. I'm just me. I'm just trying to do me. Like, but when you get to the next part of, yeah, I'm at a wedding and like I overheard this white woman and they, and she says, oh, there's OJ sitting with all those niggers. And then he's like, that's great because they didn't look. Yeah. Okay. Like you've crossed the line right. and like, and I have a hard time sort of getting into your headspace anymore. Because like then there is a schism that sort of started to happen that like I don't know what you're all about. Context is so interesting and and a lot of it you don't have any control over. But one thing that I think is going to kind of make people see this documentary through yet another prism is very recently we've seen the deaths of Prince and Muhammad Ali. And what happened in both cases for very different reasons and with different details was if you went on social media, you saw a lot of people trying to erase their cultural heritage and their appreciation of them and claim them as, you know, a great American, yeah. a great human being and so forth. And, and, and you know, watching this O.J. documentary, it's, there's, it's almost a version of the same thing that O.J. had to deal with in the 1960s. And it seems like it's never, never going away. Well, except the difference is those neither of those two guys did that at all. Like they were just so unapologetically black at every point in their career, and that if if that has happened, and and forgive me because I have not been as focused. On, I'm talking about I'm talking about uh, white people. Trying no, no, to no, 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 no. That's yeah. what I'm saying. But yeah. afterwards, and so that's it's an interesting thing that you know it's like oh right, we want to absorb these people in a way that makes us feel good. Like why do we have to sort of like these? They all belong to everybody. Right. But I'm like when you're talking about people that were so again, unapologetically black, first and foremost, and never sort of stepped outside of that and spoke to black people first and foremost as they were speaking to everyone. I'm not to say that Ali was not 100% about inclusion and, you know, and as Prince, like, like, it's not about that. But yeah, so don't, that's denying who they were, you know, and that's denying, and, and frankly, that's denying who the, their, le- their legacy and what they meant very specifically to millions of, of black Americans. 
And so that's you know, as far as OJ goes, I don't know how that's going to work when he he passes away. <coughs> that, that's OJ's <laughs> dream for that. <laughs> you know, like he transcended. He was all of us. Like that's like when OJ just well, that, like no, that's exactly that's exactly right. If everything sort of hadn't gone south, maybe that would have been perfect for him. Yeah. Right. Right. True. Yeah. I mean, going back to how we see him as this kind of charming, likable person at times in the documentary, I feel like it actually does. I I think those those elements make the make it that much better just because it's that much more chilling when you see what he's capable of and what he does you know it's just like you it wouldn't like you wouldn't have as fully formed an idea of how of who this person is if you didn't acknowledge all these other elements of him and i think i that really got to me in that wendy williams mm. uh, clip when she Rimmel you know hasn't the, seen that yet but right. okay. <laughs> i'm so, I'm so it's, excited it's the now. best scene of the movie right? <laughs> so, so you know it is my favorite scene in the entire movie I am but, so go, excited go ahead. Now. but no you know just you see her at the beginning kind of a little you know skittish around him a little standoffish a little scared maybe I, just a normal reaction to to having someone who you believe is a murderer sitting next to you and you're interviewing them she has and she's upfront about that but by the end she's she's hugging him she's like i i can't help it i love you oj like you're like you're damn likable like i forget her exact wording but it's like yeah, it's it so me. crazy so to watch to it yep. yeah and you can get that sense of how he has this yeah, Charisma. He, charm. I mean, yeah. And, and Celia Farber, who's a writer who wrote these two long pieces on OJ um, at, around the same time, you know, as she said, even spoke very sort of op- honestly about her own conflicted feelings of, you know, you're sitting next to a guy you believe committed murder, but yet you just you just don't want it to be true. You find yourself wishing that this wasn't true because he is so charming and likable. And as she says, it's like, yeah, it, in referencing Wendy Williams and others, she got OJ. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it, it's funny you were kind of doing celebrity comparisons. Um, I find it, I find that example being closer uh, to kind of like a like a R. Kelly or like a Bill Cosby or right. like someone yeah, who yeah, like yeah. you you uh, people who we have like time and time again like forgiven because we just want to remember. Either we want to remember them before we knew all the bad stuff or we're just so captivated by either their art or their sport or their charisma that Mm. it feels nice to kind of turn off your brain for a little bit. And like watching this, like I I think, you know, the reason that it is almost like a like a Greek tragedy or something is Mm -hmm. because uh, and, you know, especially for me, someone who was very familiar with it, but was not living through it. Like watching, like I just wasn't aware of how incredible of a running back he was. I had the same reaction, just watching those clips of him, where you cannot believe the runs he's like you. You just can't believe it. But it does not. If you say he was a Hall of Fame, you know, running NFL Hall of Fame running back. That doesn't do him justice. No, it's like you actually need to experience (laughs) the highlights. You're like, oh. That he line, that that line about uh, how he he could run faster sideways than most people could run yeah. front forwards. Incredible! <laughs> you like go straight to like that little clip of Barishnikov. It's like, yeah, that's not a crazy comparison because like, I'm watching this man do ballet and embarrass totally grown yeah. professional football players like time and time again. But I also think, and this is like the last thing I want to do is to get into any meaningful comparison uh, between OJ and Bill Cosby and R. Kelly, um, and degrees of 
badness. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like yeah. there is something, especially in light of this Cosby situation, where just to speaking to, about OJ's charm, which is I don't know that anyone believe like if you believe OJ is guilty of murder, right? Do you believe and so that means he's a murderer, right? But do you believe that he's no one believes he's a threat? Like in like it's a very specific circumstance that anybody who'd be driven to that point is obviously not well. Mm-hmm. But having said that, that was such a specific, rageful, personal thing. And like that probably has not shown up honestly outside of very specific environments in terms of that his violence and his rage in a way that I don't know that there have been that many people privy to the that the violence of him as a person. When you think of just just even just by reading of the accounts of Cosby, when you think of just the deliberateness and the consistency of that deliberateness, it is chilling. You know, in a way that like it's, you know, it's sort of like, oh, in a way that I'm more forgiving of Wendy Williams being charmed by OJ than I might be at this point of someone being charmed by Bill Cosby. Like you've been a threat to society for like. Right. Yeah, I mean, and yeah. even if we're like, and again, the last thing I'm doing is I don't feel like parsing terrible acts, you know, yeah. of, of violence. But um, anyhow, I don't know why I need to say that. No, it, it's So you a, don't want to make a rankings point. of bad. I, I don't want to make a rankings of, of badness. <laughs> okay. Today's episode is brought to you by Third Love. Third Love is a new lingerie brand that uses a more tailored measuring system to create better fitting bras. Shopping for bras can be a huge pain, not to mention the search to find out what your true bra size even is. Third Love offers a try before you buy program where you can test out a bra for free for 30 days before deciding if it's right for you. All you have to do is pay for shipping. You can take the tags off, wear it, and wash it to really try it out. If you love it, keep it, and they'll charge your card. If you don't, send it back for free, and your card will not be charged. Don't know your size? An online fit specialist will help you find the perfect fit. Go to thirdlove.com slash vulture to get started. I was intrigued by the structure of this thing because you did not do what I think probably 95 out of 100 documentary series about this would have done, which is you didn't start in the present and work your way back and alternate flashbacks throughout. You didn't have a kind of intrusive framing device. And you get to the end of part one and I realize, holy shit, we're still not to the murder. Right. Like we're actually moving through his life chronologically and it's as if we're reading a book. Right. Um, what's the thinking behind that? Because that's, that's you know, I, I would imagine you got some notes or some pushback or something like, uh, are you sure this is how you want to tell the story? I, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but not so much. Um, yeah. I mean, the, okay, so here's the thing. Two things, which is I think that to experience the effect and the power of what this story is, both in terms of who O.J. was as a man, the, the sort of the, the concurrent history of that city, um, leading up to a trial, it's supposed to sort of, in, in a, I had a very clear desire to reframe how you absorbed the events of 1994 and 95. And the only way I feel that you could have done that is to experience them emotionally in real time. In terms of who OJ was as a man, his rise to celebrity, being charmed by him, basically getting you in the mindset of someone who lived through this history. So it is that shocking and surprising that that guy is capable of these things. And then on the other hand, that you can live, you can emotionally experience the violence um, meted out by the LAPD, the brutality, understanding the sort of the, the long history and the consistency of these incidents. And so by the time you get to the trial, and by the way, by the time you even get to Rodney King, 
you understand that this didn't start in 1991. This is, the, in some ways, the culmination. This is like you know the pot over you know you know a boil again. Right. And that so when you then get to the sort of OJ on untru- you're like everything is framed differently in terms of people's investment in it, how people sort of the, the defense of it. And it's not because I don't think it's a, as effective, especially with the way this story is told, to have you could tell it through the lens of the trial and then you could hop back and sort of go back in time. And like it's just too like to me. I mean, that's what you would try to do if you had less time, I guess. But mm-hmm. I still don't think you can you can't impart 40 years of history in a five to 10 minute backstory. Like and so for me, like, I don't know. I just thought that the most power to be gained from absorbing the story would be through living through the whole thing chronologically and also to see the evolution of OJ's life, his being. So by the time you get to the end of the story with where we get to, you have seen a man in all his beauty and athletic glory in part one descend to this place in the course of one film. And you're not jumping back and forth. You're like, no, I was, I was, I was seduced by that guy and yeah. I'm reviled by that guy at the end. And the <laughs> only difference I would say is at the beginning, just because of the very beginning, and in some ways they do start at the beginning because the beginning of the film is him in jail. And it's the very last image that exists of him publicly. Right. So you at least understand when you're watching this story. And it's recent. And it's recent. And, there's, yeah. and, you, and you at least understand, hopefully, when you're watching that, that you know, for instance, that this isn't a story that's going to end with people cheering at the verdict. That's not the end of the story. The end of the story is com- I'm, I'm taking you up all the way to the present day. You have so much material. And were there any details where you were really like, damn it, I don't want to lose this one, but we just have so much other stuff we have to get in and we're, we have to cut for time. It's just like we can't well, make nothing, it any nothing, longer. I mean, I've been sort of going around joking about this because it's kind of true. Like it's seven hours and 45 minutes long. <laughs> I, mean, anything I, I mean, anything I wanted in there is in the film. I don't know that I cut anything for time. Right. But there, there are some things that I would have liked to have explored that I couldn't put in there based on what I had. Like what? The extent of OJ's cocaine use, mm-hmm. for instance, which has been rumored going back to the 70s when he was in Buffalo and sort of, you know, yes, you know, he lived in a pretty fast moving world in, in LA in the 80s, especially. And so there's, you know, you hear a lot of rumors and talk about the extent of it. But in terms of the, you know, sort of to get real anecdotal evidence on the record about it combined with the actual purposefulness of it within the narrative, I didn't have really either. I have a couple people talking about it. They'd done cocaine with them, whatever, but not not in a way that I could figure out a way to fit in in a in a cogent way in that narrative as much as I'm trying to explore OJ. And I would like to sort of – so if there was sort of – if something that's left out of the sort of last hour of part two – you know, or whole part two is more of just the a little bit of the partying lifestyle that existed there, even though I think most people who watch this of a certain age and a certain sort of cultural engagement understand that that world where he lived, it, that existed around there. Um, and even if we have one person who's in the film, Robin Greer, saying at, her wedding, at his wedding, like, where are the drugs? Like, you know, it's like, okay, it's the littlest thing, but you just know that it was a part of that world. But so that's one thing. Um, one thing I cut out, in, but it's an interesting discussion, is the CTE issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I had a whole scene about it um, in the part five because, you know, for me, 
if nothing else, narratively, I would like to justify all the time I spent showing him play football in the first hour, <laughs> the first you know part of the film, beyond the sort of need to just understand his greatness and his beauty and why people um, were seduced by him in that way. If there was a you know a relevant ramification to that, you know, in terms of again, we're talking about this being this huge book, sort of, it'd be like, oh yes, I would like to revisit that now. The CTE issue, meaning the possibility that brain damage from football may have accounted for some of his behaviors. Yes, correct. Yeah. Well, so and so for so there's a couple things, which is you have these sort of series of incidents of people, football players who have had CTE, and these symptoms, you know, in terms of their behavior and how it comes out, they sort of exhibit sort of these periods of acts of violence, either towards people they know, but like when you also so and then. And it affects people in different ways, right? And or, so to, he, or towards themselves. Or towards know. themselves, yeah. correct. And but it's so, but also it's something that you know it it drives you crazy, insane of what's going on in your brain. And so like, you know, you end up now because we're trying to still. This gets back to the lack of resolution thing. We're trying to understand this. We're trying to understand something that is to me an unexplainable action. Like it, you know, with all of us, even with to whatever point of rage or anger we've been driven to, you still can't get your head around. It's, that's one reason why the photos are in there. You're like, really? It's very hard to sort of like, and then to look at him the same way after that. Um, and so for me, it's like, well, I'd like to explore this, see if there are people who are experts. And, you know, at first I talked to a, a guy who's in the film who told me an anecdote in his mind that sort of was like, I believe this is, this is potentially an explanation. OJ had a large head. He, you know, went in the 70s and they, he, you know, we used to have air padding in our helmets and his head was so big he didn't wear padding. And you're like, okay, and he's a running back, which, you know, they take a lot of hits. He led the league in rushing twice. He led the nation in rushing twice at USC. He's a guy who took a lot of punishment. Okay, fine. And then you talk to the guy who, Chris, I talked to Chris Nowinski, who is the expert at MIT, who studies the NFL players' brains with the, along with these scientists. And, you know, I did an interview with him and he said, look, it would not, you know, it's almost like forced because he needs to answer the question. It's really only one question they ask him. Like he said, look, I would not be surprised if we were able to study OJ's brain after he passes away if he was found FCT. It's like, okay, fine. Now, the first thing since I buried the lead, which is like you don't know that and someone has to, you have to, someone has to die before you examine their brain. That's the only way to know if someone has CT. So that's why it's all speculative. So it's flat out speculative. Second, symptomatically when these things tend to, when this happens with people and how this, how they act out, there, there tends to be a certain time frame, you know, in terms of when people played and it sort of sets in five to 10 years after they've sort of last played football. If you believe OJ and the pattern of abuse went back as far as it did with Nicole in 1978 and potentially as you've heard allegations um, with him and his first wife. And I'm like, no, I don't think that's explained by that. Right. And then on the, and basically taking that and then on the macro level, even though I think it's a very um, um, necessary to conversation to have, a valid conversation and talking point, but that's what it is. It's a talking point. And I think that it's for something for us to discuss here. But I think in trying to offer an explanation for why OJ um, w- had a history of violence, that's a cop-out to me. And I think it sort of explains away everything else about who he was narcissistically if you, if he, if you believe he exhibits any sort of sociopathic tendencies. Like, I just think it's, I think that's an easy excuse. And so I don't think that it's like, 
and it's and it's, and it's completely speculative. I was about to ask you if you, in the course of making a project that's this long and this thorough, that's centered on one guy, if you ever get to a point where you become frustrated by the mystery of this guy, the overall mystery of this guy, where you say, like, God damn it, why did I decide to make a film about this guy? <laughs> because he is. Uh, ultimately unknowable. I mean, you could say that about anybody, but OJ especially, there's something about him that invites people to project their issues, their obsessions, their theories, everything else onto him. Um, the answer is yes, which is why I didn't want to do it in the first place. So, <laughs> but like pretty, pretty like early on, I think I embraced the mystery. I think I understood that it's like, I, I mean, I, I mean this truly, like maybe this is a terrible thing to say, having, you know, just sort of you know, putting something that's almost eight hours out into the world and, and wanting people to watch it. But, like, I don't have any answers about him. Like, all I can do is sort of go to as many people as I possibly could go to who are around him at these different points in their life, um, talk to him, have them sort of tell me their experience about him in, in different sort of ways, and have you engage with this character in a um, newer, wholer way than you have before to potentially um, understand him and all the different things that went into making him who he was. Um, but I sort of understood that I have to embrace that mystery. And it is funny that now, like, I feel like in, in, in sort of in different forms when I'm talking about him and people sort of ask me questions saying, so what was it like, you know, you know the first couple years of their marriage? So tell me about that. And I was like, what the fuck? I fucking know. <laughs> you know, it's like, how was he affected by, you know, his father being gay? And I was like, I don't know. I, I don't know him. <laughs> like, I'm, you know, sorry. Like, I'm trying my best to impart what I can, you know, give you what I can give you yeah. and use your brains to absorb it. Like, that's all I can give you. But I'm not here. I'm not an expert. So you, you did try to get in touch with him for this. You emailed yeah. him at, in jail. Yeah. And... You, obviously, that didn't happen. But if you had gotten to, to talk to him, is there something you really wanted to ask him or would have tried I, to? I, this might be terrible to say that, like, the, I'll separate my desire to interview OJ as a life experience and as someone who enjoys interviewing people from my desire to, to interview OJ and put him in this film. Because I think that he would not, him in this film would not, made the, would not have made the film better. I don't think he's a reliable narrator. I think that like a thing, a lot of the things that this film is about is not stuff that he's been um, ever particularly introspective and interesting in talking about, and so like he would have gummed up the works. That's my feeling. And I honestly, I thought about it enough mm. because I knew I was going to wait until I had done a certain amount of work, if actually most of it, before I even reached out to him. And so I very much had the real thought that even if he had, even if he had said yes he might not appear until the last part of the film. If you interviewed him, it would have been his story as right. opposed to your story. Well, and I don't even mean that in terms of like, I feel like I have ownership, like it is my story. Well, in the sense that you're the storyteller. In the source, I'm a storyteller. And like it, that might, for someone, and I, and I say that even as someone who actually tried very hard to be fair to him in this film and to be fair to everybody in this film, I just find that he, more than almost every other person in the film, I would be challenged to get him to be honest and forthcoming about this these subjects because he's in my mind proven time and again to not be forthcoming and also an extraordinarily <laughs> persuasive person from everything that I've read. Well, yeah, I mean, that, I mean, that's like almost the bigger question. Like personally, where you know it's in the film. Like his manager told me that we got into this conversation, and he was like, "No," I was basically saying like, "I'm pretty sure I'd be immune to his charm," <laughs> and he was like, "No, you'll like him." <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, "Well, 
I, but may, maybe I, maybe I, maybe I'd be charmed by him. Yeah. yeah, I'd like to think I wouldn't be. It's also, it's also like what you were just saying about it being OJ being a mystery to you. I think one of the reasons that so many of the people that are in the film are have such like incredible things to say is because he's a mystery to everyone, and everyone I feel like has been spending a decent chunk of their lives just trying to make senses sense of it all. So by the time they're asked questions about it, it's like they've probably spent more time thinking about the inner workings of OJ than OJ has. I think that's right. And I also think that unfortunately, I don't know what this says. I, I think that as much as these people have been thinking about it, there haven't been that many people who they've ended up being engaged with from a an inner media standpoint that is the overly thoughtful about it. I think that they end up sort of having to be on the other end of like really simple, sort of crass, you know, reductive questions that sort of continue to have this story existing in the same place. And so I think that there are some people that sort of in that same way were happy once they sat in a chair as much as a lot of people did not want to participate. Once they did, it was like, oh, I can unburden myself in a way that I haven't felt comfortable before because I get that you're not really sort of coming here to figure out is he like guilty or innocent and you know what time did he go to McDonald's with Cato on you know June 12th <laughs> right. I don't care yeah. you know that's not what this is about it's fascinating too to see you know people some of the witnesses talking about OJ before they got to know OJ like when he was a public figure when he was this running back this celebrity and then getting to know him as a person and you get two you almost get two different views through the same person of OJ and like one example of that is uh, the director I hope I'm saying his name right but Peter Himes Peter Himes yeah and he t- and I was like why is he in there and then I then I then then they bring up Capricorn 1 it's like oh right he directed that right yeah, and he talks about him as a you know an actor or a guy trying to be an actor well I think it's interesting actually it's almost all these people who came across OJ be it Peter Himes or Fred Levinson who directed the Hertz commercials or even Mark Morris who was the ad exec if you worked in proximity to OJ in that way uh, you became friends with OJ and every what's more interesting is that everyone in their own way believed that they I mean they were all friends of his OJ had a lot of friends now I don't know how OJ thought of all these people in terms of how he sort of classified people but they all felt that they were like they had this very clear personal bond and that again speaks to the power of him it's it's there's a reason why multiple people I interviewed referred the only person that they could think of to compare him to is Bill Clinton as far as the effect that he has on you when you know when he walks in the room and then when he has on you when you're talking to him as far as you're the only person around and like and so he had that effect on everyone he came across. And so even people who just like, oh, yeah, they were professional acquaintances, they all have stories of spending some personal time with them and really be, you know, feeling like they were, you know, they got to spend some time in OJ land. It's a great reminder that you can never really truly know another person. I mean, just as you're sitting next to remember, just remember that. <laughs> <laughs> but you're also you're also taking a wider perspective all the way through and you're situating it within the time and place. <clears throat> and and one of the things that I think distinguishes this from I've seen a lot of documentaries about this case. There's been a lot of them and I haven't seen one that takes that sort of almost like a non-fiction novel approach where it's like it would begin it it's like you're reading like almost like a long New Yorker story or something. It's like, you know, let me tell you a little bit about the history of Los Angeles and then we get to OJ. There's you know? a, there is a, I, I, I've, it's sorry to like take this to be like, so there's someone who deleted my Twitter off my phone the other night before 
the thing was on. He's like, you have to get rid of this. Good friend. But I, but I, but I say this because when I went home that night, um, probably having had a few too many drinks, and I was like, I'm gonna look at, I'm gonna look at what people are saying. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna open the arc of the covenant. Um, there, there was this one tweet that was like, at first there was man. Then man learned how to play sports. And all I could do is just like, eh, that's good, pretty good. That's totally fair. Well, but I, I like, I mean, I don't think you go that far, but I did, but I did appreciate, I did appreciate, yeah, they're like playing football with a, like, like with a stone with that's pointed, right. pointed tips. It's like, yeah. But I, but I like how you, you keep, uh, you keep the history of Southern California in, in, in mind at all times. And particularly what it meant to African Americans who migrated there, and you get a bit of that history, and this idea of this promised land, that is not a promised land unless you're white, comes through very, very strongly. Or, or a, or a football star, <laughs> or a football star. <laughs> or, or white yeah. And OJ. yeah. Yes, that's right. No, and and that's. I mean, look, everything about this story to me, as you know it, and as I saw it from the beginning, having lived through this, or in terms of my worldview, is those that juxtaposition. Which is everything about even when you take OJ at USC and like, oh, he arrives at this place. This place is representative of, you know, West LA, of the elite LA, of the Hollywood LA, and that's where OJ was acculturated. That it is located where it's located, you know, in South LA next yeah. to Watts, which burned a year and a half before OJ got there. There is no way you can divorce your mind from that fact when you also know that are those same people who burned down their neighborhood um, in protest of police violence in 1965, generationally, them and their, the next generation were those who were investing in that guy, you know, 30 years later when he was at stand accused of murder. It's like, that's the story. And, and telling the story on those two tracks is what, is just, that's what I was going to do from the get-go to explain why this thing was the way because and why oj was such a vessel and an unlikely yeah. you know sort of sim symbolic character yeah and it's there's a sense in which this entire story in addition to all the other things it is it's a story of a guy who's trying to escape his own blackness he's yeah. a guy who's trying to escape everything constantly yeah and by the way blackness is is just one of them like he was trying to escape poverty he was trying to escape sort of his sort of to me like the poverty and the classic even him marrying Marguerite like he, she's the good girl from across town. It's like that's the first level that he like advanced to. And then he gets to a college and he's around white people and rich white people. And then he sort of advances to the next level. And then he moves to Bel Air. And so he's Bel Air. He's constantly Yeah, he's constantly sort of, you know, playing this game of of climbing through American society of like and where he can shed the thing that's like the rung that's b below him. All to me, and, and this is going to sound really f strange, but it's like whatever this thing of OJ-ness is, he just kept wanting to further his OJ-ness. And this gets back to the OJ exceptionalism. He at a certain point believed that really he was it and no one else sort of existed in his. And the, the problem is there is every reason for him to believe that based on the way the world treated him. Right. And that's what sort of, in, and again, I, I'm swearing. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear you on this podcast. Swear. It's so fucked up. Yeah. It is so fucked up. And it's like, I have no sympathy for OJ at the end, as some people have said. Some people watch this and be like, I really feel sympathetic towards him. The way that sort of like, dude, he was, he was acquitted of murder. You know, the system acquitted him. Like, let him go live his life. 
And I'm like, but what did you go do with that life? Well, and, I mean, all that, everything you're saying, like, makes the end that much more bizarre just to see where he ends up. And I just, it's like this tragic story in a way, even though you don't feel sorry for him, you kind of can't believe it's just unbelievable. Well, you that, know? but that there is even because of how fucked up the criminal justice system is that there is this coda at the end where you can look at this and be like, yeah, he shouldn't have gone to jail for that long for that thing. Right. Yeah. Like, like that's you know, not right it's either. It's intentional. Yeah. Like that is not. And so that's, again, it's one of those, like you have the most surreal farcical episodes in this robbery. You're just like. What? It's some I, Elmore, it's some Elmore Leonard shit. It really it, is. It's just like it's like, our, it's like out of sight. It's like right, it's, it's, right. it's it's crazy. Yeah, right. It's like some El- Elmore Leonard shit written by Hunter S. Thompson. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like you know, yeah, yeah. And then and then you have yeah. like the just like the sh- the schlubbiness of the people with him to the stupid stupidity of the plan and what it was to then being sentenced by a, a woman who ends up being a reality TV judge sentencing him to 33 years for a crime that was took four minutes and didn't do anything except going to try to take back his own shit. You're like, what, the, what? What are we talking about? And somehow it's perfect Yeah, for the end of this story in a weird way. But that's why I think some people have come away with this being like, there's sympathy for OJ. Like they have sympathy for him because um, like he got screwed at the end. I think the miniseries, which I guess you still haven't seen, <laughs> has more has more has more sympathy for him. Really? Yeah, I think in the end, if only in the sense that we get the sense that whatever his demons were, he he loved Nicole, he loved his friends, and he he didn't he never meant for his life to end up this way. Do you think that he loved Nicole and loved his friends more than he loved himself? Oh God, no, no. But I think that comes much through much more strongly in your documentary. And I also think your documentary makes a case, like a much more subtle case, for this idea of the verdict being a kind of a weird backwards form of jury nullification. Mm-hmm. And you build the case for that with all the stuff about the history of L.A. and the mm-hmm. relationship between the minority community and the LAPD. I think, no, look, I think there's a very real way that I'm fine with this, that if you watch this film, whether, by the way, it's jury nullification specifically or it's certain things that happen during the course of the case that might lend you to understand why someone might have voted the way they voted, that you could watch the film and be like, I believe he's guilty and I believe he should have gotten off. And if you're if you're torn at all emotionally as you're watching this um, on account of that history, on account of like some sort of sense of righteousness in that way that, you know, again, maybe it's sort of like the, the whole is greater than this like sort of or more important than this one thing and not to say again that's what's also still fucked up about it that you could be your brain can go to that point and you still know you're talking about two people who were brutally murdered and it's and it's also like one of the i think looking back on it now one of the funny things like this idea of oj getting off almost as like this weird form of like reparations for Mm -hmm. black people like that it was OJ, like the person that didn't really of all the want, people, of all the right. people to like but give a win. For, like that's amazing. But that's yeah. the story. And so the question I have, you know, I'm going around saying like, you know, there is a level to which maybe this was a little bit of a primer for white people who couldn't have understood why people were cheering. In which it's like again, like it's not that confusing, but fine. <laughs> um, and so it's like if you can look, if you can watch this and feel differently and sort of understand it, great. But I also, frankly, because I do think it's fucked up that people were cheering. I, I mean, of course I understand it. I'm just saying I don't a- agree with it based on the fact of what I think about OJ. And so I actually think the tragedy in the story is that there has been so little to celebrate. There's been so little justice. There's been so little fairness. Um, 
when it comes to you know our, our, our justice system, that this is what people had to invest in. This is what people had to celebrate. Like this isn't even the scraps. That's bullshit. And so like the hollowness of that victory, I wonder if in re-engaging with it now, people might feel that way more strongly just as people sort of um, are less inclined to believe in his innocence. You also, I think, torpedo, for me at least, this idea that OJ was not really an active participant in his own defense which is oh. something that I got from reading Jeffrey Tubin's book and some other coverage of the case. Um, well, the thing about Jeffrey Tubin's book that, so this may be something that gets back to like what surprised me or what I learned about, because I think when you start off, and since Jeffrey Tubin's book is great, and in some ways it's the seminal text, if you're gonna read one book about the case, that along with American Tragedy by Lawrence Schiller, where he's embedded with the defense, but it was, that was a lot more about the internal sort of tension in the defense team, and it's fun. Um, but you know, very early in that book, in Jeffrey Tubin's book, within the first fifty pages, you know, he has the the suicide letter that he prints, and it's written in gibberish, essentially. Right. It's totally like all over the place, misspellings, bad grammar, like, and and essentially the conclusion that he comes to in the book is like he's borderline illiterate, and so like I almost had that as a jumping off point of like, even though I've watched this guy on TV and he's clearly a polished guy. So I was like, oh, maybe just OJ is not that. And I actually talked to people around there. It's like, oh, yeah, OJ is not smart enough to have like, I, I don't know, like whatever we were talking about. And then you get into it. And I'm like, no, this guy's fucking brilliant. Yeah, I mean, he, he might not be like, he might not be book smart. But like, actually, it's funny because he, he apparently read all the time. He always carried a book with him. He was huge in the mystery books. Like if you talk to all his friends who spent time with him. And so it's like, yeah, he's not. So quickly when you also think that how he managed to sort of penetrate the world the, the way he did. Um, yeah, you no, he's not stupid, you know, and I don't know how, and he's so in control of his existence at every point. Like, he could not have gotten to where he got to if he were not incredibly sharp and controlling. That's something else that you do just in the arrangement, just in the, the choice to go with a more or less chronological narrative. You see him becoming more and more and more polished oh, yeah. over the years. And that and that's, yeah, that's that's right. And that's, again, in stark contrast to where he ends up. It's hard not to sort of look at sort of the friends he's hanging out with and being like, whatever you thought about the choices he made and playing golf club at his playing golf every day at these Tony clubs and in, in you know in West LA and around those group of people that it's like it was a certain sort of elite strata that he was around and then when you just go to the you know to part five and he's hanging out with these dudes who are just hangers on and you know it's it's like. And then you go, but what's going on? Do you think he's cognizant of it? Or do you, in the end, as much as he wants to be in the country clubs, I think he just wants to be around people who kiss his ass. Yeah. And really like him. And I think in a weird way, I mean, the little I've thought about it, I wonder what prison's like for him because I don't know that it's that bad. Hmm. And I'm saying this in a way that I don't know anything about prison. I don't ever want to go there. I just know that he's not in a maximum security prison. He has a lot of freedom walking around. I'm sure he has the respect of his you know, fellow inmates. And so in some ways it's like if he gets to be the alpha and he gets to sort of maybe it's like why would that OJ ness not like he's adaptable. Happen? Yeah. Oh. Right. I mean that's if nothing else, he's adaptable. Well that's that's like the the foundation of his whole life. Like he was just constantly thrown into arenas that he should not have been able to succeed in and just kept ending up on top. Like he's so prison might be. It's almost like the, it's almost like a really grim comedy if you think of it that way. Well, that like no matter where you put the guy, he he ends up like being OJ. He's always going to be. OJ. Well, I know, and I think that's right. I mean, someone actually said, uh, and it was Celia Farber said that 
Um, OJ is this classic def- the embodiment of he's a catalytic object, which is he doesn't change, the world around him changes. He's always been the same in how he goes to the world and how he is around people. It's just, and so I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Um, but so along the lines of like OJ is more intelligent than I thought he was, he's just more interesting. He's more complex. He's more like, I knew he just wasn't this one thing the way people sort of think, but it's like, that's what I, that's the big reveal. Like when you're going, I don't know how long this thing's going to be. I'm interested in the history and the context. That's what kind of got me into it because frankly, I didn't know if there was enough about OJ or enough that I'd be able to get as far as material from people in the world to offer a compelling portrait. You have mentioned a couple of times that you were reluctant to do this. Is that why? I think the more the why-ness was like you probably maybe 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 not you because you said you've watched a lot of OJ Docs so clearly you have a yeah. certain interest in this story. Um, I didn't and I sort of thought that I had lived through it and I knew a lot of stuff had been done and I didn't know what more could be said. That was more my, in a very practical way. Um, that's why I didn't want to do it. Um, and then it was, but it wasn't because of OJ. It was because of all these other things that I felt had been underexplored and that were things that I knew I'd be comfortable spending time learning about. That that got me more engaged by the story than than doing a deep dive into OJ's life. And so, and and but, you know, but then once you decide to do that, you do know that the standard's no different. If I'm going to tell that story or the story of the trial or the story of it has to all exist in the same, you know, spe- very specific, nuanced first-person plane for all of it. And so even if I had felt like I have enough material in going through this to make what is ultimately the first two parts, the first three hours of the movie, you know, the very real concern was, well, if no one in the prosecution talks to me, just like they've talked to nobody in the last 20 years, it doesn't matter how well I've sort of told these stories on these two tracks, because if I get to the the trial, which is part of what I'm doing, and then all of a sudden that sort of first person narrative stops and I have to fill it in with just journalists, it ceases to be. Like then I feel like we just, it's like, oh, you, it's a valiant effort, you tried, but then you just couldn't quite keep going. Because I think that's the only thing about this film to me that is different beyond its obvious length is that you actually have every one of these different points per- have personal sort of engagement with this story and you're being guided by those first person perspectives versus narration or versus sort of um, analysis from other. And so that was very important to me. And so I would, but that's one of those things where if you, before you started, sat down and wrote a list of all the things you needed and needed to be sure that you could get those things before you started, nothing like this would ever get done. There's so much of like just a general leap of faith that goes into this and people that we didn't know would talk to us even when we're well in the process of doing this. And so that's one of those things you're just like, I have no idea how it all worked out, but it worked out, thankfully. Thank you so much for being with us, Ezra. Thank you. And and Rembert as well. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you, Rembert. Thank you, Ezra. Thank you, everyone. This was fun. Can we do this tomorrow? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Same time, same place. It'll be five parts. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is produced by Henry Malofsky. Laura Mayer is our managing producer and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. 
The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazelle Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellefint. I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz, and you can reach me on Twitter at Matt Zoller-Seitz. Thanks for listening.